We, as far as policy is concerned, destigmatizing mental illness is going to be the most important thing we can do. Having honest conversations, getting out the data, getting out the stories, getting out the understanding of what does recovery look like, and being really honest about what does recovery look like. That's what's going to move policy forward. You're listening to the Mental Health Download from the nonprofit Mental Health Association Oklahoma. I'm Matt Gleason. On today's episode, our guest is my friend, Daniel Billingsley. Daniel joined the Oklahoma Center for Nonprofits as its Director of Development and Marketing in 2012 and later became the Vice President of External Affairs in 2014. At the center, he oversees all fundraising, communications, public affairs, and government relations activities for the statewide Association of Charitable Nonprofits, which includes Mental Health Association Oklahoma. Prior to his work with the center, he oversaw public affairs duties for Thresholds. That is Illinois' largest nonprofit mental health services provider, and he continues to have a lifelong passion for mental health issues and substance use prevention and treatment. So, very special note about this podcast. Daniel and I recorded it before the passing of his mother. I thought about re-recording or re-editing some of the interview, but after listening to it, I left it as is because the way he talks so lovingly about his mother really is a tribute to her life and what she courageously was able to accomplish. Okay, let's get started. The mental health download starts now. Daniel Billingsley, welcome to the Mental Health Download. Well, thanks. I'm really glad to be here. It's uh, a pleasure to work with such an outstanding organization here in Tulsa and, and statewide. And as you know, and as many of you will hear, the world of, of mental health and particularly helping people with severe and persistent mental illness is something that has been a lifelong uh, passion for me. It is something that I believe in, and I'm just so glad to be here with you. Fantastic. Um, so just to begin, tell us your fancy title and then tell us the amazing work that the Oklahoma Center for Nonprofits does. Well, it, it, it's, it's a bit inflated, as I like to. I, I call it a good ego title, but I am the vice president of external affairs with the Oklahoma Center for Nonprofits. I oversee our policy work, government relations, uh, public relations, fundraising, um, and really just anything that gets us involved with the community in some way. And I've been with the center for since 2012 and love, love the center for nonprofits. We're an organization that's a little bit different. Uh, I've worked in direct service nonprofits, arts nonprofits, et cetera. But what we do is we actually help charitable organizations be better at what they do so that they can consistently, uh, you know, serve, serve not only the community, but live out their missions in a way that is as effective as possible. And, and that, that's really what makes us different, makes us special. But we believe in all missions. We want our charitable sector to be as uh, not only as good as possible, but really just have the tools they need to go out and uh, get the work done because it's a lot of work. And uh, sometimes it's not rewarded very well. And we just want them to feel as empowered as they can to go out and do this work. Awesome. Um, and how many nonprofits are there in Oklahoma? By the IRS standards, there are about 20,500 nonprofits, give or take. But what I'm going to say is that 
I, I want you to take that number and start pulling some things out. Because uh, if you take out just the C3s, the charitable organizations, that number drops a bit. Uh, if you take out churches and congregations, that number drops a lot more. And if you take out organizations that have no budget, that file a zero every year on their tax return, it drops down even more dramatically. And I always let people know that there are about 3,000 nonprofits across the state with a budget significant enough that they can make a real impact. You know, even in Tulsa County, there are only 260 human services nonprofits in the county that have large budgets, you know, half a million dollars or more. So don't let that 20,000 number uh, stick in your head that there are all these charities out there when, in fact, the ones that are doing the real work, uh, it's going to be a much, much smaller number. And that's why we have to support them. Yeah. And in Tulsa and Oklahoma City, the, if you narrow it down to the Tulsa Area United Way and the United Way of Central Oklahoma, mm -hmm. there's what, like 120? A ba yeah, basically. And if you look at the other regional United Ways around the state, you could add maybe 50 more. Interesting. Daniel, Tell me, you, you were telling me what the motto of the center is. Our motto is actually a quote attributed to John Wesley, famous theologian, and it's do all the good you can. And it goes on to say to all the people you can and all the places you can at all the times you can for as long as ever you can. And, you know, that that quote for us embodies everything that we do. Um, it's all about being there at the right time for a nonprofit, to any nonprofit, to help them do great things in their community and, you know, do good. And I think that for particularly for the Center for Nonprofits, you know, we every year I talk to my CEO and she always say, says, do you think that quote's getting stale? Do you think it's getting stale? And and I always let her know, you know, it's never going to get stale. It's an old quote. Um, but more importantly, we end just about every event that we do with that quote. It, it's if you think, you know, by faith tradition, it, it's sort of a benediction to tell people, um, you know, the work is not done. It, it doesn't end when we all get up from our tables. The the work is just beginning at that. So, you know, I, I live out that quote every day. I know that our staff lives out that quote. And most importantly, our entire nonprofit sector, and that's Mental Health Association included, lives out that quote day in and day out. Yeah. It's a wonderful quote, and it will never get stale, Daniel Billingsley, especially with you saying it and inspiring everyone across the state, all of the nonprofits. Everybody knows Daniel. That is, that's one thing I should say. Daniel is the face of nonprofits in Oklahoma for a lot of us, and we look to him for advice on a myriad of topics. So I was talking to uh, Daniel yesterday, and I was like, hey, what do you want to talk about on this podcast? And he told me something that was uh, really surprising to me, that both of your parents were in the mental health field and that your family has experienced being affected by mental illness. So I want to uh, just kind of open it up to you to, to tell me about your parents and um, your your family's experience with mental illness. Well, it's a it's a really interesting story. I I grew up in rural Kansas, and I say rural by also saying that ten minutes from where we lived, 
you know, was the mall in the suburbs and another 10 minutes on you were in Kansas City. So it's funny when I talk about my background, I never know if I'm a small town country kid, a mall rat or, you know, somebody who's got a little more grit. My family, uh, my father was a physician um, and he started his career. He wanted to be a pathologist, but uh, at the time when he was just beginning his career, the state of Kansas uh, was in dire need of rural physicians. So he became basically a rural general practitioner and did that for a number of years. He and my mom met when uh, he was in a small town. She she grew up in a family of, you know, very typical small town, Southeast Kansas uh, folks. And, and uh, it's interesting because they... They got married, uh, but they also were kind of facing their own issues. My dad was uh, pretty severely alcoholic by, you know, probably the time that he was, he and my mom had met, and and she battled alcoholism as well. Uh, Once, you know, I and, and my younger brother kind of came along, they went through drug and alcohol treatment at the uh, Osawatomie State Hospital. And you're going to hear me refer to the Osawatomie State Hospital uh, a few times. But they went through treatment in 1979 and finally were able to sort of find some space for sobriety. And so growing up, it was really interesting because my entire life felt like it was a 12-step meeting. In fact, my my parents at the time, you know, didn't leave I or my brother with a babysitter. So if they had to go to an AA meeting, you know, they were dragging us along with them. So we were, you know, off huddled in a different room, but we knew exactly what you know, Alcoholics Anonymous 12-step programs were, we knew the definition of sobriety. And and I was five years old at the time, and my brother was three. And, you know, I, I will say that that kind of starts to shape you a little bit as a child, just understanding what what all of that meant. And, um, you know, by, by 1981, uh, my father had ended up taking a job as the clinical director at the same state hospital where he sobered up. So, you know, it it was a particularly interesting situation for the family to be moving in to housing there on the grounds of the state hospital, you know, right across the street where the two of them had gone to sober up just two years before. And my father working at the state hospital there. Uh, he was really kind of the medical director. He was all, also sort of a burgeoning, what we call now an addiction medicine specialist, but he was starting to really study the nature of addiction and particularly the medical nature of addiction, substance abuse, et cetera. You know, back in the 80s, and I think anybody who grew up at that time, I'm your typical Gen Xer, but in the 80s, everything was about things like just say no and the the after school story or, you know, the very special episode of of some sitcom. And, you know, a lot of it revolved around addiction. And part of it, I think, was a, a not great, but at least it was an attempt at reducing some stigma. But, you know, there was still a lot of the the whole scared straight, you know, in it. And I remember that even growing up at that time and 
and our family was so close to it with my father working as he did. And then uh, by 1982, my mother had uh, gone into uh, practice as an addiction counselor. So, you know, it definitely had both by vocation, but also by enculturation of just what was happening at the time. You know, we had constant uh, conversations about addiction, substance abuse, mental illness. And by the time I was eight years old, you know, I knew exactly what the DSM was. I, I knew uh, a lot about various mental illnesses and scales for substance abuse. So, you know, it was a pecu- it was a peculiar and particularly odd situation to be in when you're eight or nine years old. But, you know, that's what we did. As I got older, and um, and I do remember, you know, being young and knowing full well, that, you know, physical manif- manifestations of people with mental illness, et cetera. But as I got older, you know, my family was deeply not just connected, but it really embedded in the mission of going out and particularly helping people with substance abuse, addiction, find treatment. And I always said that my wonderful parents who had zero boundaries, you know, I kind of cringe at it uh, these days, but it was nothing to drag us, the kids along, going and picking somebody up to take them to treatment. I mean, that that is, it, it was, everything stopped and you went to go take care of this uh, because my, I think especially my father and my mother both deeply felt that People deserve treatment. They shouldn't feel it's not just, you know, being afraid of it, but also they, you know, so many people, I think, feel like they don't deserve it. And for our family, it it was just, you know, that was a daily occurrence uh, to make sure that people got the help they needed. So you could say that, you know, by the time I was 12 or 13 years old, it was just completely uh, embedded in everything we did as a family. You know, by high school, as I was, you know, studying to hopefully get into college somewhere, you know, you take science classes. And I I remember sort of being sort of hit in the face with this idea around stigma, particularly. And the Oswatomie State Hospital was actually located on a kind of a bluff above the, the main community. It was always referred to as, quote unquote, the hill. And uh, I remember one of a, a teacher was very interested in hearing about our family and and quote unquote living on the hill. What's that like? And I, I remember in high school people asking things about quote unquote escaped patients or did you feel unsafe? And and I just remember, you know, saying to him, I I didn't know any differently. And yet, you know, the outside world had this wholly different perspective in mental illness. And for a long time, you know, I, I just would say, oh, no, we just live up there. We never locked our doors. I remember that. We were face-to-face with, you know, clients of the state hospital or patients. This was uh, back in the days where they moved really from institutionalization to 30, 60, 90-day treatment stabilization. But yet the, the, the old stories, the stigma really had taken kind of a grasp in this community that, you know, here's, here is a hospital that is one of the main employers in the community, and yet the community didn't understand what really happened up there. I, I think, too, that the other sort of thing that really faced our family was that I had 
two older half-brothers, my dad's kids, who at the time were starting to show signs of, you know, everything from substance abuse to, you know, severe mental illness. I And I have uh, two older half-brothers who are completely disabled because of their mental illness um, and have been for, for some time, had a lot of dealings with not only their substance abuse issues, but also, you know, law enforcement issues, et cetera. So, you know, that... It just, by the time, you know, I graduated high school, I had a completely different perspective of what the real face of mental illness looked like, whether it was through my parents, you know, recovery from addiction to my father's vocation, where we even lived, my older brothers, et cetera. And I think for me, what it did was it said, there's another part of the world out here that gets hidden. And it gets swept under the rug and people don't want to talk about it. Or if they do, it's it's the giggles, it's the fear, whatever they may sort of have in their mind about what mental illness or addiction or substance abuse looks like. And then on the other end of that, you have what the reality is, which you know because you've lived the reality. Yeah. With all that in mind, you know, let's talk about some of the policy things that you have really been concerned about and also some of the also really positive things that have happened on the positive side related to mental illness, incarceration, addiction, these sort of things. So take it from there. You know, having having kind of lived in the world of post-institutionalization and where and, and we also know that the 80s were not a great time for addiction treatment itself. Um simply because, you know, it was the days of drag somebody to treatment and then not give them aftercare. And then there was a relapse and then they would go back. Eventually, people would end up, you know, with some, a lot of people who had addictions and substance abuse issues had some sort of involvement with law enforcement. And, you know, even the judges at the time, it was, you know, get them to treatment. I remember those days of, and this this kind of plays into some of this policy work, but you know it it was also all about inequity. It, it was if you were white and had money and came from a quote unquote good family, then you were going to get a lot more chances than someone who didn't uh, or or who didn't fit that work. I, I look a lot at what's even happening right now around the opioid crisis um, all across the nation. You know, it's it's another classic example of pretty significant inequity when we're looking at particularly substance abuse treatment. And a lot of it revolves around economic disparities and particularly racial disparities, because we have seen addiction ec- epidemics for you know, over 100 years in this country. I mean, there was, you know, alcoholism and there was prohibition and then you know, how do you how do you treat alcoholism or maybe you don't need to worry about it? But I, I've talked to many different professionals and policy experts and especially those involved with criminal justice. You know, what we did with early marijuana laws, you know, were really based on, you know, stacking of charges to get people in jail. And and of course they disproportionately affected people of color, people living in poverty, et cetera mandatory sentences and those requirements. I remember, you know, back in the late 80s, early 90s, you know, if if somebody had been caught, for instance, using LSD, 
they weighed the LSD with not only the substance itself, but the stamps that they were on so that they could jack up those minimum sentences. When we, you know, really entered the late 80s, early 90s, and there was a crack cocaine epidemic, you know, you look at public sentiment at the time, because it it also disproportionately affected African-American communities, particularly those in urban areas and, and people living in poverty. You know, it almost became, I remember, you know, the language around it, I you know, and I, but just how we how we created language to denigrate an entire community. But, you know, with the opioid epidemic, what's interesting is that because the opioid epidemic doesn't really discriminate um, and whether you are living in a rural area, an urban area, whether you have, you know, means or you don't have means, you know, color of skin, whatever it may be, it's very interesting that all of a sudden that it hit a community and hit it so hard that now it's front of mind and we're always talking about it. We are always looking at it. And, but if it's done anything for the positive, it's finally said addiction does not discriminate. We have to, we have to be looking at this not as a criminal justice issue. This is a healthcare issue. I mean, flat out. Um, and how are we going to deal with it? Maybe we're finally turning a corner around stigma, around uh, substance abuse, uh, mental health, whatever it may be. But at its root, all of this is really based in inequity. And so we have created an entire system for incarceration, for institutionalization, for barriers to access to treatment, et cetera, for any type of uh, mental health issue, whether it's you know, generalized depression all the way to severe and persistent mental illness, schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, substance abuse disorders. And so what what we do now is we're taking this and we're trying to apply a better equity lens, which I think it's finally time that we do that, but it's going to take a lot of work. As far as policy is concerned, we haven't caught up to evidence-based practices, unfortunately. You know, if you were to talk about integrated dual disorders treatment or stage-based interventions, harm reduction, you know, things that, you know, sobriety may not be the goal for people. Recovery is the goal. When you look at mental illness, I have to say one place that we've got a long way to go is how we talk about mental illness. I think right now there's a a bit of a rose-colored glasses with some. We talk a lot about prevention when, in fact, what we should be doing is talking about trauma, what plays into worsening effects of mental illness. You know, a lot of mental illnesses are not preventable and we, we're never going to know the cause. I think people, you know, it's, it's sort of the, they, they want to, they want to blame something. They, they want to pick something apart, say this is part of it is stigma. I mean, they, they don't want to just, Hey, I have a child who, you know, had a psychotic break at 21 and, you know, you want to find a a way to blame for that. And we might not necessarily be able to do that. But from a policy perspective, the mental health treatment, recovery, et cetera, that we're investing in really has to be recovery focused because, and, and that's hard for a lot of people. I think people think recovery, they think cure. Unlike, you know, somebody who might go through cancer treatment that goes into remission, you know, a lot of people have their their mindset, oh, they must be cured, et cetera. 
when in fact it could come back anytime. And that's the same with, I think we have to have that same conversation about particularly mental illness, that there are stages of recovery. And one person's stage of recovery is not the next person's. And, you know, when it comes to policy, what we have to say is being recovery focused, being in that recovery mindset is going to make the policy look a lot different. It's not going to be about finding the cure or that somebody who was experiencing homelessness and uh, severe mental illness who didn't have employment, you know, what does recovery look like for that person? Is it You know, it may just be getting somebody housed. That's, you know, 90% of the game for them. Um, It could be that that person gains meaningful employment. But we have to also remember that meaningful employment for that person could mean working 15 or 20 hours a week at uh, the local Walgreens or something. That play into policy is that recovery is going to look different for each person affected. You know, when we look at policy around substance abuse, are are we still in this lock them up attitude, or is it, or do we start treating it as a, you know, medical issue, not a criminal justice issue? If we're looking at uh, crime that is, you know, petty crime that happens because somebody is mentally ill, maybe it's shoplifting or you know breaking into a car to have somewhere uh, warm to sleep at night. You know, how do we create you know, policy-driven action based on reality instead of this kind of fantasy world that that mental illness, it, it just if, if we can just get somebody the right medication or just get somebody a house, that it's never going to, we're never going to have to worry about them again. You know, the policy has to be about ongoing community supports for persons living with mental illness, uh, ongoing supports for people who have experienced severe substance abuse disorders. Right now, I think is an interesting, but I I think it's even more uh, a galvanizing time here in Oklahoma because for the first time in a long time, criminal justice reform, mental health issues, these are front of mind, I think, to just about anyone. Whenever I walk into a room and I, you know, I could have 10 people in the room, I could have 200 people in the room. It's, It's interesting. If you ask people if you know, to raise their hands if they don't know someone with a substance abuse issue or uh, a mental illness. Ask them if they don't know someone. Not a single hand goes up. So at least we're talking about it. And that destigmatization may start actually pushing policy forward. We just know incarceration is not treatment. And yet our jails are considered some of the biggest mental illness treatment facilities in the country. Cook County Jail is the largest, quote unquote, institution for mental disease in the United States. And and we can't do that. We can't shut out family members because they have a mental illness, because they have a substance abuse disorder, because, quote unquote, not like us. We, as far as policy is concerned, destigmatizing mental illness is going to be the most important thing we can do. Having honest conversations, getting out the data, getting out the stories, getting out the understanding of what does recovery look like and being really honest about what does recovery look like. That's what's going to move policy forward. And it's all of our job to tell the stories, to give the data, to correct people. 
you know, as necessary to, you know, 10 years ago, we were having the conversation of eliminating the R word around people with developmental disabilities. When are, gonna, when are we going to eliminate the stereotypes of people who have mental illness? Uh, when are we going to eliminate the language that, you know, continues to stigmatize people with mental illness? When are we going to have honest conversations about it instead of inserting it into other, you know, issues such as gun violence or, um, you know, violence in, in society? This, this is the thing that is going to have to happen to see the real policy change that we're going to need to see. Now I want you to um, help us put uh, face to the issue a bit more, um, all of these policy things. Let's talk about how that relates to your older brothers who you mentioned had been involved with law enforcement and have mental illness. Talk about their journeys and how they're doing today. When I was in elementary school, one of my older brothers went to treatment for the first time at age 16. Uh, and I, I will say that you know, there were a lot of other factors going on. You know, he had suffered, I, he had suffered childhood traumas himself. You know, I, I would say that, you know, this, this, his story is, is your very typical story about not just someone who ended up kind of getting lost in the world, but this is somebody who by all means should have recovered. Number one, he was a white kid from the suburbs who lived with his father, who was a doctor, who had the means to take care. So, you know, when you look at that right there, all of a sudden he had, you know, every possible advantage to him uh, available. And, and when we talk a lot about privilege, that's exactly what we mean here. You know, it's a white suburban kid who was having some issues around, you know, substance abuse early on. and. From there, what were we going to be able to do to, to help him out? But he just continued to descend into uh, his illness, his addictions. He had bipolar disorder and so, you know, could become, especially in his manic phases, could become incredibly grandiose and really make some not great decisions. But uh, it was in his depressive episodes that... Um, Particularly, the substance abuse was there to sort of, you know, deal with the the symptoms of those depressive episodes. He got married very early, I think at the age of 19 or 20. You know, he has several children by different relationships, but we have not had any real dealings with him as a family for more than 25 years. He sort of kind of fell off the face of the earth along with his, uh, another of our older brothers. And, um, you know, I, I would say that again, it really points to somebody who just could not find the right supports, uh, that he needed to thrive. And what, what's, you know, you can look at other fascinating parts of our family. You know, I, I my oldest brother is a, a an ophthalmologist. You know, I have another half brother who has a family, has a life. My younger brother, you know, he's a medical professional, married with kids, and you know, and and there's me, and we all, you know, we all we all made it. I mean, and and I'll be honest, I, I was I made it 
uh, with two parents who had pretty significant addiction issues, you know, and, and I'm, I'm careful. I, I don't really drink me mainly because I just know that potential genetic issue there. My younger brother, he is not a drinker just be, because of our family background. But, you know, we also, you know, we, we have honest conversations about, you know, our own mental health and, and how we're all doing. My mom still really struggles with depression herself. And, you know, we, we, we tend to have open, honest conversations. And I think, I think as a cultural societal thing, you know, mental health should be part of the conversation each and every day. And, and that's with our family. That's with our friends. That's with our coworkers. You know, it's not just asking, hi, how are you doing? But it really is making sure people feel comfortable expressing because it's really easy to say, hi, how are you? And you just say, oh, great, busy. You know, that's the word I hear most here in Oklahoma is I'm busy. But I think we need to have relationships um, with our family, with our friends, with our work colleagues, where we can deepen that a bit. One of the really sad statistics I heard a few years ago on NPR is that most people who have died from suicide have visited their primary care physician or primary care health professional in the 30 days leading up to that. And I think it was a real wake-up call for uh, primary care providers to say we need to we need to dig in a little more on our own mental health because again we if we don't do that and mitigate it there it it, it rises um, and it rises to the point of if it's substance abuse if it's involvement with law enforcement uh, but that's why we have to have those conversations early and don't wait until you know something happens that you know is that sort of catalytic event that moves you down a completely different path. So, you know, I, I look at my older brother and think, you know, what could what could we have done? What could we have done? Well, there's a ton of things that we could have done. But, you know, I think what is sad is that he never accessed the services he probably needed. And I think a lot of the barriers were around shame and stigma. Fortunately, he didn't have really the financial barriers. He didn't have, you know, lack of family support, et cetera. I think, you know, that shame, that stigma around his illness um, just kept him from finding, you know, those those sources of, of support that really could have helped at a pivotal time. And, you know, he's, he's probably now, you know, in his early 50s and, disabled, not working, you know, still struggling. And I, I don't want other people to have to, to face that. So Daniel Billingsley, it is an honor for you to be here. It is also an honor. So our sort of motto, um, as we always close out every show is go do good things. But today, because I love the Center for Nonprofits motto, I want you to close us out with your amazing motto that will never go stale, especially with you in our community, in our state, doing so much good. So close us out, Daniel. You bet. Do all the good you can for as long as ever you can.